Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and a whole lot more. Every episode of this program is available for free anytime you want it at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes. All About Jazz also provides a widget for the Jazz Session. If you go to allaboutjazz.com and just scroll down to the bottom of any page, you'll see a box that lists the most recent episode of the Jazz Session, and you can put a box just like that on your own website. If you decide to do that, which you can do just by clicking through it, there's an obvious little link to get the code and if you have questions, let me know. But if you put one on your website, please do let me know. You can go to the contact page at thejazzsession.com because I will mention your website and send people to it in my newsletter on a Monday morning, okay? Speaking of the newsletter, you can get that very easily. Just uh, sign up for the mailing list, which is at thejazzsession.com, or the Facebook group by typing the Jazz Session into the Facebook search box. I wouldn't do both because they're really identical, but I would do one or the other so that you get a little email each Monday morning telling you who's going to be on the show for the next couple of weeks and giving you some other news and notes about the jazz world. Pianist James Weidman made a career for himself accompanying uh, singers like Cassandra Wilson and Abby Lincoln and Kevin Mahogany, and he has also made a career for himself as a, a leader uh, and an instrumentalist. His new album is called Three Worlds, and it opens with this track, Mirrored Images. My guest is James Weidman. His new album is called Three Worlds, and it is my pleasure to welcome James to the show. Thanks so much for being here. Oh, thank you, Jason. 
I'm really enjoying this record, and it sounds uh, from the album like you all had a great time making it. And I know that this album kind of brings together people you'd played with in different contexts, kind of all under one roof. Can you talk a little bit about some of the folks uh, who are with you on this record? In some ways, uh, for the most part, it kind of symbolized my last decade, the, the year 2000 to 2009, because uh, it was at that point that I... Uh, Started hooking up with uh, Marty Ehrlich, Brad Jones, uh, Ray Anderson, and Francisco Mela in different contexts. Previous to that, I guess my most high-profile pro- thing that people saw me doing was with a lot of vocalists for, I guess, uh, started from Cassandra Wilson through Kevin Mahogany. So at this point, I started really doing more instrumental things. Um, Marty had a group. I recorded with him. I did some touring with uh, Ray Anderson as well. Francisco, I met through Joe Lovano when I started working with Joe. And uh, later on, Francisco joined the group. Well, Jay Hogarth, he's an old playing buddy back oh, almost 20 years now. It, it's a long-term relationship there. But all friends that we brought together, and we just uh, did the friendly thing, play music. You mentioned uh, that a lot of people would know you from your days playing with some fairly high-profile vocalists. Are there things from those days that carry over into how you either accompany other instrumentalists or how you write for an ensemble uh, that you notice, at least? I think so. When you play behind a vocalist or when you accompany or when you comp, whichever words you want to use, you're very aware of the space that is needed for the music to breathe. The vocalists, of course, they have lyrics and they have a certain idea that they need to express through the lyrics and the melody. So you're also pretty much aware of a certain type of tone painting that goes on behind that. So in those regards, yes, especially when I first started playing with Abby Lincoln and I played with her throughout the 80s, she had a marvelous approach. And it was a very fluid approach, too. So you sort of had to be ready to think fast and figure out how to really be creative in her moment of creativity. So that was a great training ground because it was free on many levels at the same time, the way that she approached the music at that period. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, James. My impression of, of Abby's band was that she was really integrated into the band in a different way than kind of the singer standing out in front of the trio or the quartet, that you were all really improvising off one another, almost as if she were playing any other instrument. Jason, that's very correct. Uh, She used to tell us that she didn't want us to accompany her, but she wanted us to explore the song with her. She also got a little twisted when people would bill her as Abby Lincoln and her trio. She wanted to be billed as the Abby Lincoln Quartet, so... That in itself kind of tells you her mindset about how she thought the music should be performed and presented. And on this new record, Three Worlds, I, I hear a lot of that uh, group interplay. There's certainly you know a lot of uh, composed sections as well, but there seem to be parts of it where um, everything is happening right in the moment and almost anything could happen. Is that a fair description? Oh, absolutely. And... Um, I attribute a lot of that to uh, 
what Ray and Marty, Brad, is, Francisco, well, everybody has that a J, too. Everybody had that type of attitude because uh, I think of their specialness. In uh, New York, you know, you have these little sections of uh, styles or genre-type players. Some guys are just heavy beboppers or straight-ahead guys. You know, when I came to New York, you had the out guys, you had the fusion guys, so on and so forth. But uh, Marty and Ray were weren't necessarily known as the guys who would be like the village vanguard guys. But the fact of the matter was that they played this sort of free bop type of situation, which made you be in the moment to be able to create on the spot. And they were, and Ray and Marty were playing duets previously to the recording. They were touring and doing things like that. And it was so perfect. I had thought about them and Marty said, well, this is what we've been doing. I said, perfect. You guys will be all warmed up, ready to go. You know, talking about that that classification of the music into genres, I, I've read somewhere you say that you were never interested in that, that you wanted to diversify yourself from the moment you stepped foot in New York. Well, yeah, because uh, that's sort of the type of uh, thing that I came from. Like in Youngstown, there wasn't a, a real jazz scene. There were the organ uh, little joints, I mean, places where you could play organ. I, but through my teenage years, I played organ with my dad. My dad was like my first teacher in terms of playing music, and we did a variety of music. I played music from the European tradition. I did that in college, where I got a degree in that, and then I played gospel music. I played some funk, and... but Your dad you was know, a sax player, right, Jeff? Sax player, yeah. yeah. And in our household, we just learned to, we, I don't know whether learn is the right word, but we heard a lot of different music, and there was never, you know, either music was good or bad. So I sort of had that type of attitude, and I thought that whatever my experience was, that I should try to build on that and develop that, along with trying to learn the vocabulary that was there in New York, which I, when I came to New York, I thought it was 
pretty enormous what people could do and what they had known, you know, just from acquiring the language that proceeded from Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and before and all that. James, did you have some uh, some compositional goals in mind for this record, Three Worlds? Well, I don't know whether I could say there were goals, but, you know, once I knew who was playing, it really helped me decide how the arrangement or how the music was going to be presented. Because I had wrote some of the music over a, uh, maybe a three-year period. And sometimes you write music, you know, you know, it's just like when you begin an improvisation. You don't know where it's going to go or what it's going to be like. And even now, as we are playing this music, the music develops into things. I kind of uh, place a lot of weight on the personalities involved in terms of how the music is going to be arranged. And uh, in terms of uh, composition, you know, I sort of, I heard Miles something Miles Davis said in the article read it. He, he said something about, well, I just start a composition and when it ends, it ends. I sort of, in some degree, I'll do that and I might go back and edit it later, you know, I, but I usually write to the beginning and then I look at it and say, well, maybe that's too long and sometimes I end up shortening it. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, uh, do you write at the piano usually, James? Um, I write... Mm, a lot of different ways. I really try not to actually write at the piano. I might sit at the piano just to uh, improvise a little bit to get the juices flowing, and then I sort of begin to write. But I try not to write idiomatically for the piano. Let's put it that way. You know, I check out the piano mainly for uh, the type of voicings I might want for a different chord or maybe... I experiment with different harmonies, whether this harmony would work well or this harmony would work better. So, so that's what I use the piano mainly for. Uh, several people I've interviewed recently, I, I can think of uh, guitarists uh, Joe Morris and Dom Manassi, for example, have said that uh, they needed to get away from the guitar to write, to kind of get out of the, the box that their fingers put them in, just by holding their instrument and playing the patterns. Is that is that what you mean by not writing idiomatically for the piano, that you kind of get away oh. from the physicality of it? Yeah, I, I, I think generally everything that I've ever written, <laughs> in fact, when I start to play it, I said, wow. I said, I have to practice this. <laughs> <laughs> who wrote this thing? This is terrible. Yeah, who wrote this anyway? You know, some of my friends are amazed, you know, they say, uh, they might not necessarily be instrumentalists. They say, you mean you have to learn your own music? <laughs> <laughs> You and uh, you and Jay seem to have a just a fantastic uh, musical rapport, and it sounds like it's a it's a personal one as well, from what you said earlier. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, of theme for you. Can you talk a little bit about about that tune and just the experience of of playing with Jay too? After um, I had written the tune and I looked at it, I said, "Oh man, this is a perfect one for Jay and I to play." <laughs> it was kind of like that. And uh, there's things that we've done, particularly I've done in his band over the years. Uh, the way that we interact and do things. So I think um, which the end result is just a result of Jay and I working together for so many years and having that type of empathy and that type of thing. 
actually, it sort of began the first time we played with each other. We hit it off pretty well. When was that? Do you remember? Uh, 1990. It was about September 1990 that we first, because I remember, I think our first gig was at the, I'll call it the middle Birdland, because there's been three of them. That's right. In New York City. <laughs> <laughs> so you were at Birdland Mark II at one point. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, Birdland 2.0. <laughs> Now, talking about uh, kind of diversifying what you're doing, I was I was interested to read about the Black Sacred Music Project. Will you uh, will you tell folks what that is and what it encompasses? Okay, yeah, around the same period that uh, I started working with Marty, actually a little before, I started hooking up with Dean Bowman, who incidentally used to also work with a booking agency that booked Jay Hogarth in the '90s, along with singing with the screaming headless torsos. It all comes full circle, then. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, um, Dean came to me with this project, but previously to that, I had been working with Ruth Naomi Floyd uh, with Contour Records, so I was producing and arranging and sometimes contributing some compositions to her work. As she comes out to church, as she does this kind of cutting-edge spiritual jazz music. Also, I have this history just from what I had done as a young person first starting to play in the churches and things, of really being fascinated with the older black sacred music, the spirituals. I was speaking even the written sort of art music spirituals like Harry T. Burley and all those different things. Um, I was just speaking with uh, the wife of a late singer who... uh, had uh, hired me to play behind him when I was like in seventh grade. I had played all these art music spirituals. That was a tradition at our church. Then there was the gospel music. So Dean was interested. So long story short, we started working. Uh, in 2008, I uh, had gotten a commission to write for the UMO Jazz Orchestra in Finland in Helsinki. So I wrote about seven or eight arrangements of black sacred music and that was a ball so recently just uh the past month jard ellis and myself indeed we toured europe doing a scaled down version of that music now i've only ever kind of listened to these jazz interpretations of sacred music as a as a jazz listener i didn't grow up in the gospel church and so i've you know i heard the ellington sacred music kind of on to the present day but but only from one particular perspective have you have you had much experience playing this music in front of audiences from the gospel tradition? And I wonder what the, if so, what the response has been. Oh, well, there has been, and it just did, it went off for 10 years. There was this Jazz Vespers in Jersey City, for instance. And um, throughout New York, there were various Jazz Vespers, Vespers that were cropping out. I introduced that audience to a lot of that music, plus Ruth Naomi Floyd did a lot of touring among those audiences. Well, the people who came to the music really enjoyed it. I think these days, especially, people are much more open than they were maybe a hundred years ago, because uh, I remember someone broached a project like that to a composer who wrote spirituals, uh, arranged spirituals, choral-type arrangements. 
and his name was Nathaniel Dead. They asked him, "Oh, why don't you have banjo and uh, saxophone?" He said, "Oh no, I, the people wouldn't even stand for that." You know, that was like in the nineteen twenties. But uh, people are much open to it because I think they respect the art of improvisation as being uh, something that's very serious and playful, but serious. <laughs> And in my limited knowledge of gospel music, uh, at least the, the, what I've heard, it seems like improvisation, at least in, in soloists, vocal soloists, and that kind of thing, has always been a part of that tradition to some extent. Oh, yeah. There's a certain type of, uh, well, you take uh, the melismas that uh, somebody like Aretha Franklin would do, or you still hear an R&B music, you know. That was kind of a improvisational thing, and there were other type of forms, but then there's also just the connection of the blues and gospel and jazz. And I think when uh, the people who I perform that type of thing with, when the type of thing that we try to bring together are those commonalities. I certainly do, because I think about, oh, just some of the people who I used to hear sing who were, you know, older people and this old tradition of a way of singing, you know, that's a little bit lost now. But it's kind of a nice thing to have a continuity of a thread in today's society, especially where everything is so vacuous and fragmented, just to, you know, bring it into a, um, a modern era moving forward, but still having a little tradition mixed up in there, too. Uh, you've had a, a really busy 2009, in, uh, both in, in recording and performance terms, and I wanted to ask you in particular about your trip to Russia, uh, how it how it came about and where you played and what it was like. Oh, well, when I worked in Russia last March, I uh, just did a few gigs. You know, there were some things I was brought there with Ole, by Oleg Karavev. And we played at the Union Converse Composers Club a few nights. And there was another place that I don't remember. And then there was also a concert 
in a museum that was uh, uh, very nice, all in Moscow. And uh, I must say I was treated very well and had a good time, and I'm planning to go back there uh, next March as well for a few days. Now, I'm not going to pretend that I know anything about the Russian jazz scene. In in the short time you had to observe it, uh, what impressions did you come away with? Well, they do have a scene. You know, there there were a lot of people who, well, years ago, you had to be a little subversive in terms of uh, playing the music even. Even though I think one of their premieres was a great lover of jazz. I think the thing was, uh, what, Andropov or something like that. Right, Yuri Andropov, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah, he he, he liked the jazz. But uh, they had to see, there was a saxophone player who was a mentor to a lot of people who, and I can't think of his name right offhand. But you know the curious thing? When I was over there, Joe Lovano was over playing a few gigs, and Eddie Henderson was over at the same time. So it was almost like big in New York. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> how did you uh, How did you first connect uh, with Joe? Uh, you've obviously been touring with the, the Us Five band. Can you talk about uh, how that connection was made? Well, you know, it's a funny thing. We're both from Ohio. When I first came to New York, he and Harold, uh, he and Harold Danko was sharing the loft together, and I was hanging out with Harold. Uh, Harold's from my hometown, Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah, I know, I know Harold well. As a matter of fact, I was going to ask you whether you two knew each other, and, and there he is. <laughs> yeah, Harold was very... I was at the university, and Harold used to come through when he was with Thad and Woody Herman, and he was quite helpful to me and tell me what to listen to and kind of what to do as I was trying to get myself together. I was just beginning to sort of really play real jazz when Harold was sort of coming to the university every now and then. So, um, and that's, you know, I would see Joe then. But in the 90s, when I was working with Kevin Mahogany, sometimes we would be at the same festival, and Joe said, yeah, we should do something together. And, but it never happened. So it happened. Now, here's the beautiful connection. Abby Lincoln did this whole week at Lincoln Center. As a matter of fact, I saw Abby at a vitamin shop <laughs> before, and she said, Oh, James Weidman, would you like to work with me? <laughs> she had so, <laughs> you know, this, this is like this, how this whole thing sort of came about. So I worked with Abby, and that was the first time in a long time. And Joe was on the bandstand at the same time. So he said, Wow, we finally hooked up. And so then he started calling me. <laughs> <laughs> Now, now, this record only just came out, but uh, I've seldom met a, a musician who's not already thinking of what's uh, what's coming next. Do you have some, some things on the sketch pad or the drawing board for uh, uh, what might make up another recording? Oh, you know, in the back of my mind, you know, because what happens, oh, okay, this project is out now, so I need to be thinking about the other one. I really, seriously haven't had a chance to sketch out anything, but, I, you know, my first thing will be as soon as I uh, get through uh, January and the taxes and the paper chase and all this kind of stuff is to start writing and see what happens. I'm going to write first. I'm not going to, I'm going to write without expectations. Now, I, I find that's the easiest thing to do. And then 
we'll we'll see what type of thing it's going to be. But I will tell you that I have a feeling that it's going to be a live recording. Oh, great! Mm-hmm. That I could tell you for sure. Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Uh, the The current album, which just came out, we're already talking about the next thing, is uh, is called Three Worlds. Uh, James Weidman is my guest. Uh, really great album, James, and I've I've had a, a lot of fun listening to it. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. I uh, thank you for taking the time to do it. Oh, thank you, Jason. And thanks for having. Me. That's pianist James Weidman from his album Three Worlds on Inner Circle Music. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of this show is archived and freely available anytime you want it at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. My thanks to the members of the Respect Sextet, who by the time this airs will have already played their show at Le Poisson Rouge. They uh, recorded the theme music for this program, and they are also playing various places in the East Coast. I think maybe Cambridge or Boston and uh, Philadelphia, I think. But I'm not 100% sure. So to make yourself sure, just visit respectsextet.com and see if they're coming to your town. Thanks also to Dave Vrabel. He designed the show's logo. Most importantly, of course, thank you to you for coming and listening to another episode. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session.
listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Bye.